Today I'm going to begin the second part of the book, and it's called the book of glory. The book of glory is called that way because it is going to show the glory of Jesus, not so much by the miracles or the signs, but by the words and the actions. I don't know if you're aware that in the Gospel of John, when we get to chapter 12, all the way through chapter 21, from chapter 12, you have the, the, the glorious entry into Jerusalem. Already the Passion Week. From, so from chapter 12 to chapter 20, you have the Passion Week. You have the week where Jesus had went to Jerusalem and was confronted and was arrested and killed by the civil authorities, turned in by the religious authority who turned him into a political action and actually died by political execution. So in this part of the book, we're going to be seeing the glory of the Christ. Now, I'm going to be referring to the Christ because as I said last week, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his second name. I disclosed my second name last week. Who, who remembers it? Good. Giovanni, Edwin Giovanni. So when I heard Edwin Giovanni Gonzalez Gertz, I trembled. I still do. <laughs> but but when, when Jesus was with his mother, Mary never called, you Jesus Christ, Ben Joseph. No. It is not a, a, a nickname that his friends gave him. Do you want to know what was my nickname when I was in high school? Bacardi. You know why? Not because I drank it, but because that was the only thing my high school friends knew was produced and came out of Puerto Rico. Good marketing they had done. So, so I was called Bacardi. Um, hey, Bacardi, let's go. Okay. That was my nickname. So, so Christ was not a nickname for Jesus either. It wasn't also a term of endearment. What, what are some terms of endearments that are very interesting for Southern white and for Southern black in Puerto Rico? What would they call you? Oye, negrita. Negrito. A term over there, they call me, hey, little black one. And we never got upset, right, Carmen? We never got upset. Those are terms of endearments in our culture. Hey, honey. Uh, no, Christ was not either a term of endearment for Jesus. It wasn't a nickname. It wasn't his second name. It was not his nickname. It was a title. It was a title that comes from the Old Testament. It was a title that throughout the ages had acquired several meanings and several, several significance. It was a title that was ascribed that by the time of Jesus, it was a person who was going to come from God the Father, number one. This person was going to be sent by God. This person was going to solve the problems. And this person was going to be one with God. Slide. Another one. So, another one. There you go. So, in essence, the Christ, the person who was ascribed the title of the Christ... 
Christos in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, has to be somebody who was going to be sent by God the Father, who was going to be one with God, and who was going to solve the problems. In Jesus' time, they were expecting a Messiah because Israel was in occupied territory by a European nation who came over and occupied Palestine and was oppressing and exercising what was called the Roman peace, which means if you don't do it my way, I kill you. Simple. That was Pax Romana. So in Jesus' time, the concept of Messiah had many different meanings. And this happened because when Jesus is relating with the, with the, the disciples, the disciples are actually having different understandings on who Jesus was. Not all of them understood Jesus to, to be the one who you, you and I, 2,000 years on the other side of the history, on the other side of the story, understand him to be. As we read in some weeks ago, he was the son of Mary and Joseph. We know him. How dare he call himself God. Or one with God. So they were looking for a Messiah, and some in Israel were looking for a Messiah that was going to be a liberator. That was going to come into Israel and get the Romans out of their back. Get the Romans out of Palestine and become a liberator, and therefore the kingdom of Israel will shine again and again. That was the expectations of many of the disciples. We know this because even when Jesus had risen from the dead, even when the, he's about to ascend into heaven, they ask him, are you in the first chapter of Acts, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They were thinking that now that he's risen from the dead, he's powerful, we're going to kick some Roman butt here. Yeah, that's what they thought. That's what they understood. Even when they saw the miracles, even in the confession of Peter, there is some confusion about who this Messiah is. There were others in Israel who were expecting a spiritual Messiah, a Messiah that would come and rescue their hearts and save them, and that they would be resurrected in the final days. We find this in Mary and Martha. There were disciples who believed in a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of Christ that would come and liberate them, but in a spiritual way. I have to tell you that the majority of the Israelis in that day thought that Jesus was a political figure. That's the way he was interpreted. That's the way he was reacted upon. That's why the Jews, when he began to raise people from the dead in that last chapter in, in John, in John 11, that towards the end, they Make a plot to kill him because they were taking away the power of the church and giving it to the people. So they accused him of trying to take over the Roman government. Ah, convenient. So in essence, for one to be called the Christ, this person had to prove that he came from God, that he was sent from God. You know, the word sent in the Gospel of John appears over 55 times. 55 times sent appears in the Gospel of John. Two times it refers to the Pharisees that were sent to spy and check on Jesus. Three times was referred to as John was sent. 
to announce the one that was going to come after him. So the word sent, however, 50 of them, or 49, were then used about Jesus. And listen to this one. But I have a greater witness than John. He's comparing himself with John the Baptist. My teachings and my miracles are greater than John's. You see? The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. John 5, 36. There's 40 of them. I can go through all of them, but I'm not going to. Because then another one says, the Father and Father, well, what I'm telling you is from the Father. That's John 14, 24. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. So you will find in many of these uh, uh, discourses of Jesus, Jesus saying, you don't believe in me because you don't want to believe because the Father sent me. He's proving. Now, Matthew would not use this idea of Jesus being sent. In Matthew's gospel, the way that Matthew dealt with that was, as it is foretold in the prophecies. So Matthew takes you to the prophecies. John takes you to the statements of Jesus as being sent from God. Paul puts it in this wonderful way that we many times like to remember it around Christmas time. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to sin so that he could adopt us as his children. So in order for someone to be called the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, he needed to come from God the Father. He needed to be sent by the Father. And I think this gospel proves that point. Secondly, the person had to be one with God. And this was a problem for Jesus because Jesus, in many occasions, would say, the works that you see me do, I do because I see the Father do them. In just the verse that we read, what I am telling you is from the Father. So the words Jesus would utter were words from the Father. His deeds were things that he saw the Father do. So Jesus and the Father are one, or are they? Listen to his prayer in the rest of the, of the, of the section in, in John 17. I pray, Jesus says, that they will be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe, again, you sent me. Notice, we are one and you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me. So they may be one as we are one. God and the Son are one. I am in them. You are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know again that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So that unity of the Son with the Father is an illustration of us with the Son and us with one another. That unity that, that Jesus lives with the Father. It's a unity that is undividable. The Nicene Creed says, essence from the same essence, light from light. So Jesus is one with God the Father. 
He says it in many occasions. I am the good shepherd. They hear my voice. Text above. The sheep hear the voice of God, and they recognize his voice. So his voice is also the voice of God. So not only if somebody is to be called the Christ, has to be sent by God, be one with God, but in Luke, after the resurrection, when the disciples are in the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens the Scriptures to them and explains to them why it was necessary for the Messiah to die. Because you see, the, this idea of the Lamb of God is also a very limited concept in Scripture. It appears only twice in the Gospel of John. And it is John the Baptist, not the Presbyterian, it is John the Baptist who actually sees Jesus coming towards him and says, there he is, the Lamb of God. And after the baptism, he's walking away and he says it again, there it is, the Lamb of God who is coming to what? To what? Next, next one. Next slide. It has come to clean Oh, I cleaned the world from sin. Yeah. Oh, there's no one? I didn't put it. Okay. Whoops. The Lamb of God. Now, John is using the concept of lamb, and this is interesting because it is in this gospel that we equate Jesus to the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament. In Matthew, Matthew refers to Jesus as the one who was come to be sacrificed, but the, he doesn't use the word lamb of God. The Lamb of God came, He was sent by God, He was one with God, and then He gave His life for us. And I don't know what you think about that, but being the Lamb of God was painful, was not easy, it was the literal word was excruciating. The word comes from being on the cross. Excruciating. Peter also uses the concept Lamb of God. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty and vain life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which loses their value. It was paid by the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. See, Jesus is the Christ. Is He your Christ? He is sent by the Father to display the glory. Have you seen His glory? He is one with the Father doing and saying the acts and words of the Father. Have you noticed the acts and works of the Father in your life? He is the anointed one, the anointed of the Father, the anointed of God to be given in sacrifice, to be given as a sign to the peoples that God is with us. Jesus is the Christ. He came from God. He showed us God, and He was the Lamb of God. Though He was God, Paul reminds us, he did not think of it as equality, as something to, to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave 
and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died as criminals, death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord for the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Dear God, we pray for your church today throughout the world. We ask you, God, to forgive us for the divisions that separate us and to heal the wounds that those divisions have caused. We pray for that church, Christ's body. May that church be united and strengthened by Christ himself, who holds all things together and has first place in everything. We pray for all who hold the power and responsibilities that comes with authority. We pray that the Spirit of Christ, the King and Lord, will teach them humility and their willingness to stand alongside those who depend on them for leadership. Lord, we pray for our congregation, specifically for all those who suffer pain, mental distress, through illness or through cruelty of others. We pray that God's power and spirit will strengthen them and bring them the healing and peace that belong to Christ's kingdom. We pray for the saints, those of our family who have gone before us and now live in God's eternal light, giving thanks for their witness and encouragement. We pray that we will share in their inheritance within the kingdom of God's beloved Son, who is our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. Heavenly Father, you have rescued us from the power of darkness. Help us to walk in this world as citizens of your kingdom of light, where Christ reigns as King in glory forever and ever, and who taught us to say, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.